Now it was about October of 2022 that I had started this um, series of messages in the book of Proverbs. And as Pastor Sean rightly alluded to, we are going at somewhat of a snail's pace here in working through the book of Proverbs. As a matter of fact, 16 sermons later, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 3 of Proverbs. Now, since beginning the book of Proverbs, again, I want to recall to you, to your mind, some of the themes and some of the topics that we have dealt with. Again, going back to uh, Proverbs chapter 1, we defined what wisdom was, and we also saw the foundation of wisdom being the fear of the Lord, which is also the foundation for reverence for parents. Then we took a look also at some of the blessings of wisdom. We said that wisdom brings favor with God and man, brings peace, life, righteousness, riches, health. If you recall a few Sundays back when we were in Proverbs and I was doing a summary of this, again, I want to remind you to go and listen to those sermons, lest again you walk away with the impression that this was some sort of prosperity gospel preaching. But again, continuing in Proverbs, we also looked at the value of wisdom, right? Wisdom is valuable both to man and to God. If you recall again in Proverbs chapter 3, we saw that it was by wisdom that the world was created. And then, of course, coming down towards the end of Proverbs chapter 3, we saw the wisdom, the value of wisdom as it relates to our neighbor. That was again in Proverbs verses 27 to 28. Again, we began to consider the topic of doing good unto our neighbor. In that particular Bible study, we considered several relationships of authority and submission and what doing good looks like in any given scenario. Now, if you recall, we also defined the word neighbor as Jesus had defined it according to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. As we saw, our neighbor can be anyone that we interact with. It is not just the person who lives next door. Right? Your neighbor could be an employee. Neighbor could be the boss. Your neighbor can be a friend. Your neighbor can be a total stranger. Children. Your closest neighbors are your brothers and your sisters. It is your parents. Husbands. Your neighbor is your wife. And wives, your neighbor is your husband. And so, as we saw last time, we must be purposeful and intentional about doing good unto our neighbor. Now, ultimately, as we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor can even be an enemy. 
And so if you want to know how far you have progressed in your sanctification and your walk with the Lord, then seek to do good unto your enemy. This, of course, is difficult. Again, it was just two verses that we looked at in Proverbs, Proverbs 27 and 28. Two verses that are easy to understand, but hard to apply. In actuality, we need spirit-wrought compassion for our neighbor, and we need to have that compassion as we would for ourselves. And so if you recall, during our six o'clock hour um, prayer meeting back in October, we prayed just for that, for compassion. Now, moving on to Proverbs 29 to 35 this morning, Solomon gives us some additional instructions regarding how we ought to treat our neighbor. In fact, he gives us three imperatives or commands, and then he gives us a contrast. Now, we will look at two of these imperatives this morning, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the third, and then the contrast that Solomon gives. And so, as we approach these verses, we want to approach these verses along the following two headings. First, do not devise harm, and second, do not contend. Okay? Do not devise harm, and do not contend. <clears throat> Again, Solomon writes, do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Simply put, just as the wise son spends much effort to consider how he ought to do good unto his neighbor, there is a type of person who exerts just as much effort plotting evil against his. Now, I want us to first observe the phrase, devise harm. In the first place, this word devise is a verb. It is a verb that means to cut in, as in the case of plowing. And so it is a farming terminology. Now, just as a side note, even if you grew up in the city, like myself, we are all farmers, right? Even God pictures himself as a farmer in the scripture. And just as a good farmer, we all will reap what we have sown. The Bible reminds us that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap death. But if we sow to the spirit, then we will reap life and peace. And so again, going back to this word devise, we see that this is mostly used in association with farming. It is used, for instance, as plow in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. The verse states, you shall not plow, that's our word, 
with an ox and a donkey together. And so we see the idea in Proverbs 3.29 to plow harm means to prepare for it. Just as a farmer prepares the land for sowing. So this word device here has a strong connotation to preparation. There is planning that is involved. And what is it that Solomon warns against planning? It is harm. Now this word harm here can mean evil or misery or distress or injury. Interestingly enough, we see the phrase devise harm from Proverbs 3 translated as plotting evil in Samuel 23 verse 9. In uh, 1 Samuel 23 verse 9, it says, Now David knew that Saul was plotting, that's our word for devise, evil, that's our word for harm, against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Saul, of course, wanted to murder David. That was the evil crime that he was plotting. Now, even in our own law, we recognize that there are different degrees or levels of crime. We often speak of first-degree murder or second-degree murder. Second-degree murder, of course, being that, that heinous act of murder that's, com- that's committed in a uh, flash of anger. It's, it's done on the moment. Whereas first-degree murder carries with it the idea of somebody planning it out. It is an act of murder that is premeditated. Again, think about the word premeditated. means that the person thought about the murder in advance and intentionally executed it. They meditated upon all the possible options and outcomes to execute evil upon their neighbor. They considered the most brutal way in order to exact their revenge. This was the harm, of course, that Saul was plotting against his neighbor, David. Now, actual murder is one form of evil, but there are other ways that harm is exacted against our neighbor. Again, think of some of the other words that are used to describe this word harm, right? Words like distress and misery. To plot misery and distress against your neighbor is a great evil that Solomon forbids. And so, children, adults, ask yourself the question, do you plot misery and distress for others? Does it bring you joy to see others suffer? Or does taking revenge bring a sense of satisfaction? 
If you do, then Solomon says that this is not wise. Now there are yet still further levels to this evil. Some plot harm against others out of revenge, while others plot harm even without a cause. And so Solomon in Proverbs 3 again says, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Now this word for securely here means safety. It is the idea of having someone's trust. It's the type of trust that you would expect to exist between close associates or even family. Again, in order for a society to function properly, there must be some level and degree of trust that exists. Again, going back to this morning's Bible study, Pastor Sean mentioned taking his car to the mechanic, right? There's a level of trust that Pastor Sean had in that what the mechanic said was honest, right? That there were issues with the car. Again, another example, when you think of, uh, we go to the doctor all of the time, right? We trust that the doctor has our best interests at heart and not the pharmaceutical company. Again, even in the church, there must be a degree of trust that exists between the leaders and the congregation for the body to function in a healthy manner. Perhaps the greatest sphere of trust extends to our immediate family. This is the place where we would expect trust to be the strongest. This should be the place where trust is developed and nurtured. And yet, it is also the place in which trust is most egregiously violated. There are parents who plot evil and violate their own children, destroying their trust forever. As well as children who devise evil against their brothers and their sisters and even their own parents to whom good is due. Again, a spouse may plow evil by stepping outside of the marriage covenant through pornography or adultery. Or there are more subtle ways that evil may be devised. Some intentionally withhold physical or emotional intimacy. Again, some women devise evil against the neighbor who resides in their own womb through the practice of abortion. Now, have you, if you've ever had the opportunity to go down to an abortion clinic, one of the things that you may notice, if you look at the license plate, it's always out of state. It's always out of state. Why is that? It's again because the evil is plotted. It's planned out. 
It's not done on the spur of the moment. It is premeditated. Now again, while most of us might not be given to the physical act of murdering, some of us are wholly given to the act of murdering our neighbors with our words. This then leads us to our second point, which is do not contend. Do not contend. Again, Solomon writes, do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Now, this word contend here means to strive. It is the idea of striving physically or with words. Thus, it is also translated as quarrel. And so we read, for instance, in Exodus 17, 2, of the people against Moses, they say, it says, therefore the people quarreled, right, that's a word, with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel, right, that's a word again, with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, <clears throat> this sin of being a quarrelsome person is a very serious sin. I want to take the remainder of the time to expound upon just how serious of a sin it is. First, consider that a man who is quarrelsome should be barred from being a pastor. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 24, excuse me, verses 24 to 25 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Notice that in this passage there is a distinction between correcting sin and being quarrelsome. As pastors, we are often called to correct others with the word of God. And that is not the same as being quarrelsome. Later in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says to the young pastor, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Again, some people only want their pastors to preach a good sermon from the pulpit. They don't want the word of God to be personally applied to their situation or their sins specifically. They do not want to be corrected. But if you are to be shepherded by the word of God, then you need to be open to humble correction. And so again, realize that not all contending is bad. In fact, there are some things that we are commanded to contend for. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, for instance, we read, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly 
for the faith which was once for all handed down to the, sta- to the saints. Again, we are to strive and contend for the truth. And yet, there are some men who strive and contend not because they're defending truth, but because it is in their nature to quarrel. They love to argue a point. They love to fight. They enjoy the satisfaction of winning a battle verbally. As the Proverbs puts it, they contend with a man without cause. Again, this is a very serious sin. As I've already stated, it can bar a person from ministry, but it can also bar a person from heaven. Think about what Paul says about being quarrelsome in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, Paul mentions this disposition as being a deed of the flesh. Now, of course, some of the sins mentioned in in Galatians 5, we would readily and immediately think of as, yes, this is something that is a deed of the flesh. But I want you to also notice that being a quarrelsome person is a deed of the flesh. And I want you to pay attention to the company that this sin keeps. It's not just simply the way that someone is. It is actually sin. It is sin that men will be condemned to hell for. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we'll look briefly at verses 19 to 21. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, as we consider the list in, from Galatians 5 of the deeds of the flesh, we see generally there are about four categories that we can uh, divide the list into. The first category has to do with all manner of unlawful sexual practices. Those are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And those three words overlap in meaning and cover a broad range of sexual activity prohibited by the scriptures. And then there is the second category of what we will call religious or worship sins. This involves things like idolatry and sorcery. 
But then there is the third category, which is perhaps the most extensive category of sins. These are sins related to interpersonal or relationships or community sins. It is in this list that we find a quarreling spirit and its various companions. Listen again to the list of sins in this third category. They are enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Again, this category of sins begins with enmities, also translated as hatred. This is hostility or extreme ill will towards another, especially that of an enemy. It is an active opposition. Now, this is the same word used in Romans 8, verses 6 to 7, where Paul says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile, that's our word, toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So Paul contrasts the mindset on the spirit, which results in life and peace, versus the mindset on the flesh, which produces death and hostility. Now, it is this type of hostility that gives way to the remaining sins that we find as deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. It is this type of hatred that drives them. And so next in Galatians 5, we find the sin from Proverbs 3. It is strife. Again, strife conveys the idea of discord, fighting, or quarreling. Now, by nature, we are a people who love to fight. And some of us love to fight more than others. Now, our desire to fight does not always manifest itself physically through striking others. You see, most of us can restrain ourselves in that manner for one reason or the other. We might think to ourselves, well, if I hit the wrong person, then I might end up getting injured or worse yet, killed. Or if I hit the wrong person, then again, I might end up doing some jail time. But when it comes to our speech, right, there is a unrestrained nature that often shows itself in the things that we say. It is one of those areas in which there are very few external restraints. And it is the same hatred in the heart that leads to quarreling. And in the midst of quarreling, we commit word murder. Now, some of us are 
well-trained in the art of word murder. We are verbal assassins with our words. We leave behind a trail of bodies and, and destruction with our words. Our words are ice cold and chosen carefully with the intent to do maximum damage. We want our words to hurt the most, so we say the most hurtful things. Again, hatred in the heart is at the root of quarreling. We go nuclear and scorched earth with our tongue, setting everything ablaze. Not just with our tongues, but even with our fingertips as well. You say, what do I mean? Well, today we have the benefit of uh, technology. So we have social media, we have text message, we have emails, we have um, multiple ways in which we can communicate and disseminate information. But often, these mediums are not good means by which to have a discussion. In fact, it is a whole lot easier to quarrel on social media or through text or through email. In some cases, the things that people would not say to you face to face, they say on Facebook. And with every stroke of the key, pride and hatred grows. It's as if we start chomping at the bits to put people in their place. We can't wait to show them just how wise we are and just how foolish they are. Some of us love to drop truth bombs on others, but it's not so much about the truth as it is about the lie. The lie is that we are defending truth, but the reality is we're proud. We're proud and we love to quarrel. And so, as a Christian, especially as a Christian, don't try to baptize your quarreling spirit as defending truth. We don't need to baptize that spirit. Instead, by the spirit, we need to put that deed of the flesh to death. Kill it, or it will be killing you. Again, Paul continues, and much like with the first list, we see that there are overlaps in the descriptions that he uses as well. Next, he says there is jealousy. Jealousy also translated as emulations or, or zeals. It is identified as one commentator describes it, a boiling and rising up of the spirits and passions at the honor and happiness of another. Now, as we will see next time, there is a good type of jealousy or zeal. This uh, word is used to describe Christ, is used to describe God. And so we will look at that more closely. But in 
In this passage, in Galatians 5, we're talking about the bad type of jealousy. We're talking about the evil kind. This kind that bubbles up from a heart of hatred because of the good and honor of others. And so jealousy can lead to another deed of the flesh listed in Galatians 5 called disputes. Interestingly enough, we see a connection between jealousy and disputing in Acts chapter 13, verse 45. Now in Acts 13, 45, Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the region of Pisidian Antioch. And the text states that, it states this, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. The text says that they were, again, filled with jealousy. In other words, they were filled with hatred because of the honor that the apostles were receiving from preaching the good news of the gospel. This caused them to then begin to contradict the apostles' words. Now, this is the idea of the word translated as disputes in Galatians 5. Disputes is that is, is the sin of someone who is perpetually contradictory or, again, someone who is prone to quarreling. Now, for those of you who are sports fans, again, uh, you might recall the show Undisputed when Skip Bayless and uh, Shannon Sharp used to co-host that show. Now, if you've ever seen it, one thing that you'll notice in the show when, it, when they were still on was that they always contradicted each other. Regardless of what one said, the other person said the opposite. And now, to some extent, that was just entertaining. It was just entertainment. But in real life, there is nothing entertaining about a person who is perpetually contradictory. There is nothing cute about a person who is prone to quarreling. It is, again, a great sin. Children, adults, are you prone to being contradictory? Are you prone to quarreling with your siblings or your parents or your spouse? Paul says that this is a very serious sin. It is a deed of the flesh which puts men and women in danger of hellfire. Again, Paul says in verse 21 <clears throat> that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, you have to do some self-reflection. You got to do some soul searching. You got to begin to ask the question, is this the practice 
of your life? Are you prone to the manifestations of hatred in all of its various forms? To put it plainly, is your heart filled with violence and hatred? Are you prone to quarreling or murdering others with your words? Do you plot injury against your neighbor without cause? Well, if that is you here this this morning, then I have a word of encouragement and exhortation. You see, Christ came to redeem a violent and hostile people by means of violence, the violence of the cross. The Son of God was murdered on a tree so that the hostility and the hatred of his people would be put to death. Christ was crucified so that we would no longer walk in death and hatred, but in life and peace. Paul again puts it this way in Titus 3.3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. This is the gospel. First and foremost, as the text puts it, only those who are regenerated by the Spirit can put off hatred as a way of life. In and of yourself, you do not have the power, but God does. Repent of your hatred and hostility and turn to Christ. He is merciful and he will save. He will wash you and make you clean. He will renew you and teach you the way of peace. And to believers who struggle with that person or persons in their life, return to the gospel as well. Remember from what Christ has redeemed you from. You, as Titus 3, 3 puts it, once were foolish. You once were filled with hatred, but now you are wise. Never forget that you too were once hostile towards God, but you were forgiven. You were shown mercy and grace. And now you too have that same power to extend mercy and grace onto your enemies as well. Do you believe this? You might say again, 
Pastor Devon, you really don't know this person. And you're right, I don't. But God does. God knows. And God will make it right. Again, recall the words of the apostle in Romans 12, 17 to 21. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. What's our responsibility? But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord and word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that instructs, corrects, reproves, exhorts. We thank you for all that the word of God does. And we pray that you would take your, your word by your spirit and apply it to the hearts of the hearers here this morning. For those who don't know you, May they be convicted of their sin and their hatred and the enmity and the malice in their hearts. May it cause them to forsake their sin for Christ. May it cause them to turn from their sin onto the Savior. And for your people, Lord, who, who do know you, help us to always recall from once from where we came from what you have rescued us from from the hostility that existed between between us and what you did through your great love and mercy by sending your son your only begotten son not to die for friends but for enemies we the people of god were once your enemies we were once those who were enslaved to various lusts and, and passions and, and those who were at war with you, as it were. But you saved us. You've shown us mercy and grace and kindness. And we ought to do so to our enemies as well. We ought to be like our Father in heaven, who is gracious and kind even to his enemies. We know, Lord, that this is difficult, even impossible to do without your spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would strengthen us when we are tempted to use our tongues to exact revenge and to damage and to hurt and to injure and to cause harm. That we might, might be restrained by the spirit, that we might 
instead exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in kindness, that we might respond in a way that even as, it recall, even as we recall in Romans, where as much as it depends upon us, Lord, that we would strive to live in, live in peace with others. Lord, we know that that is not always possible. And we know that you give us grace in those times too as well. Where there is just constant war and persecution and hatred that, that, is, that comes our way, may we recall again the admonition of Scripture that we are not to be overcome by evil, but instead, instead we are to overcome evil with good. For we again are those who have a new nature and who have power, the power to do so. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in the church this day, and we pray that again you would take your word and apply it to the, to the heart of your people at the point of need. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>